Sometime back, we went through some classes on the nature of saving faith and full salvation under the New Covenant that we refer to as the study of faith that works. I very intentionally worded it that way because there's quite a bit of the Christian population of this modern world that doesn't seem to believe that faith involves works, that it's either faith or works. But that's absolutely the opposite, as you'll see in many, many scriptures in the Bible, of what the Bible actually teaches about the nature of saving faith and full salvation. There is no faith that does not work. Faith always produces works. It always inspires works. It always instigates people to do something in response as a product of the fact that they have faith. I'm going to go through some more points on the nature of full salvation, on the nature of saving faith. Most of these classes, we have questions coming in while we're having them, sometimes from all around the country or even all around the world. Questions are coming in when I have some of the online ministerial type classes that I have. Those questions come in in a printed form, and I usually am responding to those. So whenever that occurs during these classes where we have questions coming in, because the necessity for the anonymity of some of the overseas brethren in very heavily persecuted areas of the world, I'm not going to give the name of each person. If I refer to them at all, I may refer to them as a minister from such and such country, if they're from a country that is outside the United States. So in some of these classes that we'll have on faith that works or fully saving faith or the nature of full salvation or whatever other title that the folks will end up using for these, we'll have questions, as I said, coming in that I get sent to me that I'll be responding to. And sometimes I get responses back to some of my statements that come after I've responded to them. And again, these are mostly in printed form because of the nature of the way we're doing this online. It's more like a live stream with people being able to type out questions and comments than it is a Zoom meeting where people are actually live and interacting with me as I'm talking. Some of the recordings of some of the discussions we're going to have were transposed into a written form in our Aerial Institute journals. So you can go back and see a little bit more of a streamlined version of those conversations. Though These recorded sessions are a little bit more involved. Those were edited down some because sometimes you may have a number of people that are saying amen or other things that we don't print all that out. We just basically put the key questions and key responses. But in this type of a live session like we're going to have here in a few moments, we will be getting all of those things. So the only thing that I'll mention as far as things that I'm seeing on the screen from people are questions that we might be getting, and again, where that question might be coming from. There are so many different places you can begin to discuss the issue of full salvation in the Scripture, the idea of saving faith, or as I'm calling it, faith that works, because as I said, there is no saving faith that doesn't work. It's like an engine. If it doesn't work, it isn't going to save anybody. It has to work, and God's not the only one doing the work. God expects us to do some of the work that he gives us the power to do. If he gives us the instruction manual to do some things, which he does in his scripture, if he gives us the power source to do some things, which he does through his Holy Spirit, and if he gives us instructors and aides who can assist us in doing things in the right way, which he does through his ministry and other people, then certainly we're responsible to do the things that he is asking us to do in his word and that he's helping us to do through his spirit and through his ministry and other sources of inspiration and empowerment. Rather than to go through this exhaustively and comprehensively like we do some subjects where I just go through scripture after scripture after scripture in a row, I'm going to come at this from a number of different angles based on the kind of questions and comments that I'm getting sent in to me. Sometimes I'll get questions on the nature of saving faith. Sometimes I'll get questions on defining perfection and what full perfection is or what we sometimes have called absolute perfection versus what some might call relative perfection or something similar. 
And as I get those questions, I will, in these sessions, touch on the questions as I'm getting them, again, rather than to go point by point by point through this subject from Genesis to Revelation. But I hope that as we go through and get questions, we'll end up covering it exhaustively anyway. One of the first subjects I got some questions on related to this was the nature of what full perfection is and whether or not it's possible for people in our modern day to go on to perfection in the sense of going on to full perfection. One of the most common arguments is made by modern day believers against the belief in going on to full perfection, which is a faulty argument, by the way, is that they claim they've never seen or heard of anyone that's gone on to complete perfection, which is what I mean by full perfection, by the way. Or they claim that it's simply not possible for a human being to ever be fully perfect in this present world that we're living in. The first claim that they may have never seen somebody go on to full perfection might very well be true, but the second is not. At least not if we take the scripture for what it says. The New Testament very clearly teaches and testifies to the fact that individuals in the early church period were going on to perfection. The problem is, what level of righteousness, holiness, and other qualities that go into the package of perfection is the New Testament talking about? Well, it gives us the exact measurement for what the perfection is that people in the early church period were going on to, that we are going to have to be able to go on to at some point as well, if we're going to have eternal life and immortality. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, it says he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And he's about to tell you what we have to all come up to, the level we have to all rise to, unto a perfect man. All right, well, if it just stopped there with that, you might define that in a lot of different ways. But this tells us specifically what it is to be a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All right, first of all, whose measure are we trying to measure up to? The measure of some other man we've seen in history that we say he was a great and a holy man, but he wasn't absolutely perfect because that's just not possible. Was Jesus absolutely perfect or not? Was there something still in Jesus at the point of his death on the cross and in his resurrected state that still could be tempted by sin and might fall? Of course there wasn't. We know what the measure of the stature of Christ is, but notice this doesn't just say the measure of the stature of Christ. It says the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which means that the Spirit inspiring Paul to word it this way leaves no wiggle room. This is not just some measure of Christ's stature. It's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which means whatever level of perfection Jesus was at, no matter how impossible it may seem to individuals for anyone else to be at that level, that is the level of perfection that we are striving for. And by the way, I once in a while hear people say that level of perfection will only happen when you're resurrected. You'll be resurrected in a perfect state like Jesus was. That totally contradicts the fact that the first part of this passage I read in the 11th verse talks about the different offices of the ministry and goes on to say that those offices were given for the perfecting of the saints. The very same perfecting that's talked about in the 13th verse that's defined as someone coming to the place where they are a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That means that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are part of the machinery that creates the level of perfection that is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
which tells us a number of things I may come back to. But the key thing I want to focus on here is that it tells us that clearly in a day where there are those five offices, which are human beings, by the way, working in the church, the expectation would be there that we can reach that level of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A measurement based on Christ, not on some man that didn't attain that level, saying, well, he lived at a holy level. You're going to have to consider exactly what level of perfection Jesus existed in when he was made an offering for sin, and that is the level of perfection that we are intended to attain. Some will attempt to argue that the perfecting of the saints here is just referring to them being made more spiritually mature. One of the most liberal modern shifting of responsibility that I've seen by translators and students of the original languages is to try to take words that are translated perfect or perfection and just say they're just talking about a high level of maturity. The words that are translated perfect or perfection can refer to maturity. They also can refer to perfection. But even if they are referring to maturity, what level of maturity are they referring to? They're obviously referring to spiritual maturity, not just natural maturity, that you're growing up and getting taller or whatever the case might be. So if they are referring to a level of maturity, what level of maturity are we talking about? Believe it or not, I have no argument whatsoever with the claim that being a perfect man or the perfecting of the saints is talking about them coming to a level of spiritual maturity. Perfection is a level of spiritual maturity, so I don't have a problem with that but only if you properly and biblically define what that spiritual maturity is and whose measure delineates that maturity. That's not hard at all for us to do. We just defined it in the passage we just read in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, because that passage very clearly says that this perfection is the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, which means if our measure of spiritual maturity, which is undeniably moral and spiritual in nature and its core meaning, is based on measuring up to and maturing into the stature of the fullness of Christ, that can only mean we're intended and expected to come to the same level of spiritual maturity that he has. Period. There is no other option. There's no lower level that could possibly be considered the level of maturity that is expected of the people of God under the new covenant. There is no other possibility for the meaning of that language. Because as I said, even if you want to get creative and say, oh, it's just talking about being spiritually mature, based on whose measurement of spiritual maturity? Based on that of Christ. Can you be any more spiritually mature than Christ? Is there some area of spiritual maturity he's lacking in? Of course not. Which means you would not be able to be lacking in any area either. And if you were not lacking in any area of spiritual maturity, to the degree that you measured up to the fullness of Christ, Christ's stature, you clearly would have to be perfect in a complete and absolute sense. As I just pointed out, if the argument's made that this is just referring to complete maturity and some vague definition of it, and not to perfection in terms of morality, just consider again that it's Jesus' maturity that's the standard after all. It certainly isn't talking about his physical maturity, having been about 33 years old when he died and resurrected, or some other physical measure, so it can only be referring to his spiritual maturity. So is Christ's spiritual maturity less than full and complete moral perfection? Of course not. Notice this isn't something that's just going to happen in spite of ourselves. And by the way, in considering what we're going to be talking about in some of this series, that has to do with full salvation and faith that works and the necessity for us to actually be involved in our salvation, it isn't just something that happens to us without any action on our part or any level of responsibility that we have. Notice this isn't something that's just going to happen in spite of ourselves, and that is, some people believe, we'll just be remade into this level of maturity or perfection by the process of a physical future resurrection. 
What I mean by that is that at the moment you go through a physical future resurrection, that process would turn you into a creature that is perfect and beyond sin. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible constantly teaches the necessity for us to be going on to perfection in this life before the resurrection, for us to be striving for the measure of that stature of Christ's fullness in this life. And we will have individual involvement in that process. How do I know that this is something that will occur in the human lifespan of some individuals, those who we define as overcomers, or since it's certain that you can overcome some things, not overcoming all things, perhaps a little better stated as full or complete overcomers? Once again, by the very same passage, consider that the Lord gave the church the five offices of ministry for a purpose of, among several things, the perfecting of the saints, till we all come unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this passage not only tells us what the measure and standard of our moral and spiritual maturity is, Jesus himself, but it also tells us that at least some, we believe 144,000 before the marriage supper, will attain that level of spiritual maturity during their human lifespan prior to the first resurrection and the marriage supper of the Lamb. If God gave the offices of the ministry for that purpose, which he clearly did, and he stated that those human offices would be part of the necessary requirements for a person to go on to the level of perfection, as you see in Hebrews 6.1, that's defined, as you see in Ephesians 4, as a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, then it's undeniable that someone is going to have to go on to that full measure, full perfection, or full maturity during their human lifespan while that human ministry is operating in that fully functioning type of role. As of the claim that some modern critics of the doctrine of perfection make, that no one has ever seen anyone achieve that standard. The New Testament testifies that there were men and women in that day, that standard of complete, absolute perfection. By the way, though I'm sure I'll define this more in some upcoming sessions, complete and absolute perfection is not just holding your external sins in check. You would have to be beyond the potential for continuing to sin. Your old man would have to be fully and truly dead. And if your old man is dead, he can't be tempted anymore, which means you have to be beyond the potential for temptation. We have those in this day who believe that certain ones that they love or respected went on to that level of perfection, but I would ask them if you do believe that, do you believe they were at the point where they were no longer capable of being tempted by any sin? Because they would have to be at that level to have gone on to the level of perfection that's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If they just held their sins in check, but they were still tempted to want to sin, I don't believe they've attained to that level of perfection that would merit them bride membership. They'll certainly attain to a resurrection and a better place in that resurrection, because when they rise, they'll be much closer to the goal of that full perfection. But it is full and complete perfection that is the goal. So coming back to this claim that many modern critics of the doctrine of perfection make, that no one has seen anyone ever achieve complete and absolute perfection, so it must not be possible. As I said, the New Testament testifies there were men and women in the early church period that were doing so. And it would be insensible to state that the offices of the ministry that are given to human ministers, by the way, for the purpose of perfecting the saints and bringing them up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, really never did or ever will do any such thing. Again, remember, you can't get a higher level of perfection than the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the offices and ministries that were operating in the early church period had to be bringing people up to that level for Paul to be referring to it as an ongoing operation in expectation in that day. Why would the Lord even give the offices of ministry for that purpose if that purpose has never been accomplished at any time in history or ever will be accomplished during any period of the lifespan of the church when those offices are present, but only will occur in a resurrection in the future? Just consider that. 
as of the claim that full perfection, which is a standard and the requirement of full salvation, is impossible for a human being in their pre-resurrection human state. I'll just quote the words of one of my favorite songs that I've heard sung by the ladies in the Houston Assembly. The world says we can't be like him. We might as well just give on in. We can't live above all sin. But Jesus did. Jesus did so for multiple reasons, one of which was the necessity of him doing so in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. But he also did so in order to set the standard for us. As you can see by the scripture I have quoted multiple times in Ephesians 4.13, as well as other scriptures. His perfection is the mark we're to strive for, the target we're to aim for, and what we are to emulate if we're truly and fully following in his footsteps. The problem with the claim that something's impossible because you haven't personally seen or experienced it yet is that it defames God. Nothing is impossible with God. And if you need some scriptures for that, just go to Luke one thirty-seven or 18.27. With man alone, notice what word I'm stressing, alone, it is certainly impossible to go on to complete perfection. But with God, nothing is impossible. And one man and God can triumph over not only a thousand, as a song and as the scripture says, but can triumph over any enemy, including the carnal enemy within. So we should never limit God by our limited conception of him, and we should not limit his plan by our limited conception of its process and the power behind that process. I'll close out this session with a story that's somewhat humorous. It's just one of many examples by which you could make the point of this lesson. Back in 1870, there was a clergyman who visited a small denominational college and stayed at the home of one of the professors. One evening, during one of their discussions, a clergyman said, I believe that the Bible states that nothing else can be or will be invented. The professor replied, I totally disagree. In fact, I believe within 50 years, men will be able to soar through the sky like birds. The clergyman responded in a dogmatic and corrective tone. I suggest that you not share your opinion anymore, lest you be accused of blasphemy, for flight is reserved only for the angels. Do you know what that clergyman's name was, or better yet, what his son's names were? The clergyman's name was Milton Wright. The man that stated so dogmatically that men will never be able to fly was the father of two famous sons that we refer to as the Wright brothers. Thirty years after he made his unfortunate declaration, his own sons defied gravity and flew some of the first airplanes. The fact that we have not seen something in our day, or among our peers, so to speak, or in our community, does not mean it is impossible. And even if no one has seen it for centuries or millennia, it still wouldn't make it impossible for God. We do believe there are seasons for this level of perfection that I'm referring to. And that tells us two different things, by the way, that I'm sure we'll talk about in some upcoming sessions. One of them is, if there are seasons and we're not in that season, then you wouldn't have somebody that you would have seen with your own eyes who went on to that level of perfection. If the early brain period, the early church period, was one of those seasons, none of us were alive in that day to see firsthand that level of perfection. Which also addresses the other side of the coin, which is if people have gone on to some measure, notice the word I'm using, measure of perfection, in the last nearly 2,000 years since the time of the early church, and we don't have all the pieces and parts that the early church had in terms of all the five offices of ministry fully functioning or operating in their fullness, or the level of the truth or the level of the Spirit of God that was present in the early church, which is, by the way, exactly why we are striving to restore the church, because we don't believe we have all those things yet. If that's true, that we don't have all those things yet, then any level of perfection somebody has come to is much more likely to just be external perfection. 
holding your sins in check, rather than going on to the true measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that is absolute and complete perfection, where you are beyond the potential to even sin any longer.